Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Thank you to everybody who's been signing up to our Patreon page. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash philosophy, W-I-L-O-S-O-P-H-Y. If you sign up there for as little as a dollar a month, well, a dollar US per month, you get a early and ad-free feed of this show. So there are going to be some other bonuses up on that page at some other stages. In fact, there are a list of goals there that you can check out and see what we're aspiring to here with the show. But basically, the first one we're going for is $5,000 in contributions per month. And we budgeted that if we can do $5,000 per month, we can afford to do two brand new episodes per week. That will be one on a Monday with a brand new guest, like the one you're going to listen to today, or a Sunday for our Patreon subscribers, and uh, one brand new one on a fr- uh, Friday, which is uh, with a previous philosophy guest, a catch-up episode. Uh, last week, we did one of those with Celia Picola. Uh, we had some problems uploading it uh, to some of the Well, basically to Apple iTunes. (laughs) That was pretty much it. I think everybody else who listens to it on any other service uh, got it downloaded, but it did not download on iTunes. We think we have rectified that now, but if you haven't caught the Celia Picola episode, it's an absolute ripper, and that came out last Friday. So that's our aim. We'll do a brand new episode on a Monday, and we'll do a catch-up episode on a Friday to enable us to do that budget-wise. We need to get that contribution up to $5,000 per month, and we're getting there. Slowly but surely, we are going up towards that mark. So I appreciate everybody who signed up already. And if you've been thinking about signing up, this is the time to do it because, well, I'm concentrating on the podcast a lot at the moment because it's my only job. It looks like I won't be doing any stand-up shows at all for the rest of the year. And I guess there's got to be a question mark over early next year depending on whether we get a virus for this pesky uh, worldwide pandemic that we're currently facing. So uh, it's it's an interesting time re-evaluating what it is that I'm doing with my life and uh, what I should be focusing my energy on. And one of the things that I can focus my energy on at the moment is this show. So um, I hope that you are enjoying the extra episodes that you're getting. I hope you're enjoying the chats that I'm having with people and I am sincerely appreciative of the contribution that you are making to make sure that that can happen. So let's get to today's episode without any further ado. Josh Zepps is an Australian humorist and broadcaster and he has a new conversation uh, podcast called Uncomfortable Conversations. We talk a lot about that and the nature of uncomfortable conversations in this chat with Josh. I like having Josh on the podcast because he does provoke me a little bit. Uh, you know, we have some similar ideas and then a bunch of ideas that I think we have a similar you know, starting point, but approach them in a very different way in a very different direction. So always incredibly engaging to have a chat with Josh and uh, I hope you're really going to enjoy this one. So tofop.com if you want to send a message to the podcast, if you're not a Patreon subscriber, of course, if you're on Patreon and you want to send me a message, I will respond individually to everybody who hits me up on the Patreon page. I hope you enjoy this episode with Josh Zepps. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and very happy to have today's guest on the show. He's somebody that I've been wanting to talk to in this sort of forum for a very long time, but 
through, you know, well, I used to have a rule for this podcast, as <clears throat> regular listeners will know, which was that I would only do it in the same room as the person that I was interviewing because I thought there was something about the intimacy of conversation that benefited from, you know, sitting across the table from somebody having that conversation and it would take it to greater depths and it was my one rule that I had for the show. And then a fucking global pandemic happened and it turns out that all the things that we thought were true were no longer true anymore and now I'm willing to do it over whatever piece of fucking technology we can make work. And this is not the first one we've tried today. We started on a thing called Squadcast <laughs> that everybody told me is going to be the solution to all my problems. <laughs> Turns out it isn't if the person at the other end is in a place where they don't have Wi-Fi. So today we are over FaceTime on our phones and uh, talking into separate microphones. But this is how the podcast starts. I ask the guests who they are. So guest, who are you? My name's Josh Zepps. You know, the funny thing, though, is the reason why this doesn't work. I have a guilty secret to reveal. One reason why this is so dodgy is not just because the Wi-Fi doesn't work where I currently am, but because I think that Vodafone's turned my phone off because I didn't pay the bill. So even if we want to do it over 3G, we can't. I've got to be honest with you. I was with Vodafone for a very long time and they would often turn my service off regardless of whether I paid the bills or not. (laughs) Sometimes it just meant you drove into a different suburb. They don't send me the bill, Will. They don't send me anything. They send me a text message saying your account is $743 over date and 90 days overdue. And I'm like, I didn't... They're like, you're signed up for auto e-bills. You're receiving the bills in some old email address. I'm like... I don't even, I'm not going to open emails from you. I don't know what you're talking about. So now here we are. Here we are. I'm I recently Zips. did an inventory of, um, we can get to you in a second. Yeah, no, we'll just on, back to me, me. Back to me, Will. Enough about you. Let's talk it's about my me podcast. It's called yeah, Philosophy right, okay. with Will Anderson, yeah, not right. with Josh Epps. So, uh, <laughs> no, I recently did an inventory of all my online bills and all the passwords to my account. And I went through everything and like went through my bills. And because this is the thing you do in a global pandemic when you're yep. completely unemployed, you finally <laughs> decide it's time to get on top of your shit because getting on top of your shit actually fucking matters. You can't just paper over it by doing another gig and not worrying about the fact you don't know where your fucking bills are going. So I feel very morally superior in this conversation in a way that somebody who's just learned how to use correct language feels morally superior to Mm. the person who was in the position they were in yesterday. Go on, Lord Lord it over me. me. I've been you for seven or eight years and now I've got my shit sorted, mate. So Hooray, hooray, hooray. If I wasn't holding a phone, if I wasn't holding a stupid phone, I'd give you a big fat round of applause. Hooray for Will Anderson, the Bill Conqueror of Australia. Uh, I yeah no, I'm still I and I'm so bad. I even I got so fed up with Vodafone. Are they going to sue us for this? Is that all right? I got so fed up with them that I went out and bought one of those prepaid SIM cards from like dodgy dodgy mobile co from the supermarket. Paid 150 bucks for it because they were promising that'll buy me a year of Dodgy Brothers. phone service and I haven't that was about six months ago I haven't bothered to put it in the phone just keep paying my overpriced Vodafone bills that never arrive and they keep turning my phone off this is the chaos of my life during a pandemic Will Anderson and I haven't okay, even gotten let, on top let, of my bills let's start again properly then so okay. who are you I'm Josh Seps. Do you, do you need more information about me? I mean, it helps because what I like to do is see what you say about yourself and then I tend to explore those issues for the rest of the podcast. If you oh, don't, yeah, yeah. I'll still I'll still get to other stuff. It's fine. Yeah. I can keep <laughs> digging. But it is a little helpful if at the start you lay out a few things <laughs> and then I know how you, you say, define so yourself. What you're, and, you don't, you, what you're saying is you don't want me to repeat my name for a third time? <laughs> No, yeah, go on. Three yeah. times. I'm jo- who Josh who are you? I'm Josh. Josh. Sets. Sets. 
That's S Z E P S. I'm a broadcaster. I'm a I'm a humorist. I'm a journalist. Uh, I'm a dad. I'm a husband. Uh, I always think it's a bit cheesy when people lead with their families. Screw the family, really. Uh, they come second. Uh, and I currently work at the ABC, among other places. I have a podcast called Uncomfortable Conversations with Josh Sepps, where we have uncomfortable conversations with interesting people about some of the more taboo topics around, because I feel like a lot of us, especially in the media, are tiptoeing around subjects and treading on eggshells when we could just be speaking bluntly about things things that would otherwise get us fired. So Uncomfortable Conversations is where I'm going to get myself cancelled from everything else that I do in my life. But at the moment, until that happens, uh, you can hear me on ABC Radio Sydney, uh, hither and thither. So I'm going to start with I'm going to start at the end and work our way back like a good okay. mystery novel. Uh, Uncomfortable Conversations. So very interesting to me what you consider to be uncomfortable conversations there's only i think four episodes of the show out yet four or five anyway and i've listened to three of them so far and i've I've loved them i found them very engaging and very interesting and i think probably in the way that you imagined like a person like me who has some sympathy with some of the points that are raised but in a lot of ways is the person who disagrees with 90% of the shit that some of the fucking idiots come up with (laughs) like it is that's what the point of it is right the point of this uncomfortable conversations is not that you are going to get somebody on and have one of those right and left I disagree with you so I'm going to shout at you for an hour and a half that's right it's the idea of having Maybe a civilised conversation about an uncomfortable topic. Yeah, I don't want to bury the lead too much, but as the as the season progresses and as the show unfolds, my plan is for the conversations themselves to become somewhat more uncomfortable uh, in that I want to start booking people who disagree with me a little bit more and try to tease out and untangle the reasons why we disagree. But you're right to put your finger on the fact that, like, I get quite a lot of, a lot of like, angry tweets and emails from people saying, that wasn't uncomfortable, that was quite comfortable that was a perfectly civil conversation and i'm like no 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 you're missing the point i i don't think there's actually i don't think there actually is anything uncomfortable necessarily about about like seeing seeing andrew bolt and walid ali shout at each other is not actually uncomfortable because like they're both playing the roles that each of them know they need to play and you know sort of what each of them are going to say uh the whole point of having an uncomfortable conversation is to try to pull ourselves a little bit out of the comfort zones of the political boxes that we're supposed to be in and find a way for someone to concede something that they might not ordinarily be supposed to concede, to think about things through a frame that they don't normally think about things f- through, and to and to touch on topics, I guess, in a way that is unexpected. Like, one of the things that I admire amongst the people who I like to consume in the media is a refusal to be easily pigeonholed into one point of view or another, and, like... You know the most the most interesting people to listen to, and the and the mo- think about your own mates. I mean, your most interesting mates are the ones usually who you're not entirely sure what they're going to think about something when you start talking about something new. There's nothing more boring than the mate who's always banging on about how like you need to be afraid of China because they're going to invade us all, uh, and the 21st century is going to be all dominated by Chinese people. Like that's not interesting, and it's also not interesting to be around the person who is constantly jumping on everybody else for using the wrong gender pronouns and talking about how we're not sufficiently guilty of our colonial past. Uh, like, So that's, I think, one, the first episode of Uncomfortable Conversations where I sit down with Stan Grant for a couple of hours uh, is one where 
I think it's a good example of trying to tease out the areas in which we slightly disagree. Because I mean, I'm broadly on the left. I broadly, I'm, 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 I'm on board with not being a dick. I, I, don't, I don't, I don't have no desire to be a dick. I don't think dickishness is a thing to 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 parade around and be proud of. But I also think that we can get a little bit smug on my side of politics and a bit censorious and a bit sort of finger-waggy and school about how much better we are than conservatives. And so the podcast is an attempt to talk to, to, to find the ways in which, uh, like, I disagree with a mainstream sort of consensus or, heteri- or you know, um, or orthodoxy or dogma, um, yeah, and play in that space of nuance and ambiguity. In a funny way, this is what, hopefully. This is why I'm interested in you and interested in talking to you because often on this podcast, people, I mean, if there is, you know, I mean, when I say often, I like to exaggerate these things for the point of this conversation <laughs> sometimes. And I'm using All these sometimes the examples. Every episode. As, and often uh, people, if they have a criticism, is the idea, they go, why don't you have Sam Newman on? Why don't you have Andrew Bolt on? And I have absolutely no interest in that because this is meant to be like a safe space for the guests. If the guests come on, I actually want to hear what they have to say. And even if it's something that I diametrically disagree with, and I think in probably every episode of this show that I've ever done, there would be people saying things that I personally don't understand or don't agree with or just don't have any skin in the game. So I've never had to have an opinion on and I enjoy that but I have no desire to get somebody on and then just go through the pantomime of you know them saying all their talking points and then me having to refute all their talking points this is why I find you much more interesting because you do sometimes make me uncomfortable it surprises me that you so easily identify yourself as being sort of you know leftish because the broad left because there is an element of you that sometimes pulls me into uncomfortable thoughts and uncomfortable conversations. And I want to know where, where does that come from? You know, that idea of that it's almost more fun to pick on what you identify as being your own side than the other side. It's heaps more fun. And it's also much more useful. I mean, it's much more useful. Look, there, I get a lot of... So last year I was um, on, te- on the telly as well as on radio because I was doing the, the weekend breakfast, the weekend version of, like, News Breakfast on ABC TV. Uh, and that is an extremely lefty uh, crowd, at least the people who attack you on Twitter. Uh, I didn't even know what a F... R-W-N-J was. Do you know what an F-R-W-N-J is? I think it's probably a fucking right-wing nut job. Yes, good work. (laughs) Are you the one who's been tweeting? Are you the egg on Twitter who's been tweeting at me anonymously? (laughs) Uh, Because I I apparently am a fucking right-wing nut job or far right-wing nut job, depending on who's who's, uh, doing the tweeting. Because, for example, like after the... uh, Just an example off the top of my head. After the the Muslim massacre in Christchurch. I was talking to a Labor politician who was talking about how about the 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 toxic nature of Islamophobia in Australian society, and I was trying to make the point that is there a space to have a conversation about the compatibility of some religions and some cultures with Western liberal democracy? that doesn't get you immediately tarred as being an Islamophobe? And is there a risk that the moment anyone raises a kind of demographic anxiety... So, you know, you've got, a, you've got an elderly white person who lives in a suburb of... It was an Australian suburb that was white when they grew up. Now there's lots of headscarves. 
they have a sort of demographic anxiety about the changing complexion of Australia under multiculturalism. They have a sort of secular antipathy towards theocracy. They don't want to see, you know, they're they're broad-minded enough to be pro women's rights and pro-gay rights and they're worried about the conservatism of Muslim communities in Australia. But there's no context for talking about that outside of one in which they're going to be uh, accused of being racists and bigots. And is there a risk that by driving that conversation underground and and sort of accusing everybody who has any demographic anxiety of being a bigot, you foster, you create these subterranean kind of communities that uh, that enables actual radicalism and Islamophobia to genuinely flourish. So I'm trying to have that conversation, of course, perhaps not at the most opportune moment after 50-odd souls have been slaughtered in the most horrifying massacre on New Zealand soil. But I'm trying to have that conversation. And that's why you're an FRWNJ. That's why I'm an FRWNJ. And it's it's also why I'm no longer on the telly on the ABC because because those I don't think that, you know, it became apparent that, there was not. There's not really the freedom to be able to actually talk about about things the way that we say that we we want to talk about things. That's why there's, and and I I'm not I'm not shitting on the ABC for this. I'm shitting on the specific viewers of uh, the particular show that I was that I was doing that made life essentially intolerable. I think there is an element of what you say that I certainly you know, think has a great deal of truth in it, which is that those same people would complain about somebody from the IPA being on, you know, the drum or they complain about somebody who comes in who's never going to change their mind and is pushing a specific agenda, raising those issues. Well, the reason that you have to have those people is you won't let more reasonable people raise those conversations. If they let you have those conversations, they don't then have to have Piers Ackerman on insiders because those Mm. same arguments... Uh, are being raised in a way that we could have a conversation around them and we could have a more nuanced conversation. And the second thing that I think is really important is what you say about the idea of driving these ideas underground. You know, the idea of doubling down on a concept, you know, taking a whole group of people who probably are quite reasonable people and by then, you know, no one ever gets cancelled. We talk about cancel culture, people don't get cancelled. But what they end up doing is then only playing to the crowd that will still hear their ideas. And that can be Mm, when mm. these, you know, nationalism movements, when these racist movements, when these bigoted movements gain real power when they're only talking to themselves and they're not talking to everybody anymore. Well, that's right. And when you when you say, why do I get more of a kick out of criticising my own side than, than the opposition? Uh, I mean, one of the reasons is because I think my our own house has to be in order in order to defeat the opposition. Like, you know, why does Pauline, why did Pauline Hanson ever become a thing? I mean, it's it's not just because there are racists <coughs> in Australia. It's also because... In the 20 years prior to her becoming a thing, uh, the Australian elite decided that Australia was going to become a multicultural society and have very large numbers of of Asian immig- immigrants coming to the country without really addressing any of the concerns that that might raise, without investing enough in infrastructure in some parts of Sydney and Melbourne, uh, without alleviating people's anxieties about whether it was putting too much of a pressure on hospitals and roads and so on. I'm a massive fan of huge immigration into Australia, big fan of multiculturalism, and I want those things to have enough 
enough of a groundwell of public support that they're sustainable over the long term. And I think part of what happened was that there was a there was an uprising of people going, hang on a second, if the Labor Party and the Liberal Party are both in cahoots with this new thing, like when was I ever consulted about this new changing face of Australia? And that erupted in dysfunctional ways with Pauline Hanson and One Nation. And it has erupted in dysfunctional ways in the States with Trump. And it's erupting in dysfunctional ways in the UK with Brexit and in Europe with far right parties. And I sort of want to find like a sensible middle ground where we can bring the largest number of people along with us on the ride of kind of broadly progressive, broad church uh, values. And I think that the way of doing that is not to be uh, not to be the scolds and not and like, what's the marginal utility will of me criticizing Donald Trump? Like, you know, what does that add? Who does what does that add to anyone? I mean, I think I think just in terms of how we can be useful to each other. Criticising our own side is imperative and representing and being as generous as we can be towards people on the other side so that we can find, we can actually tease out where is it that they're being dickwads and where is it that there is potentially an area of consensus is vital if we actually want our own objectives to be to be achieved. Otherwise, it's a zero-sum game. It's just a battle of, of attrition. So I am sort of proudly a critic of of my own side because I think that's the only way to defeat the other. I think that uh, what you've said also touches on something that comes up quite a lot in my world, which is the idea of us agreeing to a concept without, you know, then putting in the necessary steps of implementation. So, for example, if what you're talking about, you know, we agree that we want to be a multicultural country and here are all the benefits that we have from being a multicultural country, but then recognising, because we have history, you know, we, we, we say all the time it happens to each generation of migrants who come here. Well, if it happens to each generation of migrants who come here, surely there are lessons we've learnt from the previous generations that we can implement <laughs> this time around infrastructure, around access to work, around integration, genuine integration into communities, into all these things that can not only make it great for the community that these people are coming into, but for the people coming into to this world that they can be accepted. You've got to, if you agree with the idea, then you've got to have some sort of plan of implementation afterwards to make sure that the idea is, um, you know, successful in the first place. That's right. And if you don't, don't don't try to dismiss all criticism of your fuck up by accusing people who make the criticism of being racists. Don't be like, you know, uh, I mean, even Bob Carr thinks we should ho- we should reduce the rate of immigration into Australia. And his argument is very simple. He He goes... Look, if I if I had any faith that state governments were going to do the investments necessary to cope with the with the pace of immigration, then uh, that'd be great, and that's what I would like to happen. But the reality is, state governments aren't going to invest that much. So can't can't we just have like the same number of migrants who would have arrived uh, by 2025 arrive by 2028 instead? Like, would that be the end of the world just to slow down the pace a, a little bit? And you're right, this happens all the time. We know what the problems are, then we don't respond to the problems. And any time some low-information voter in the western suburbs of Sydney votes for a Conservative Party instead of for their quote-unquote economic interests and vote for the Labor Party, all the left-wing Chardonnay-sipping, latte-swilling elites like us go, what are they doing? Don't they understand that they should be voting Labor? No, because they have a demographic anxiety and they they can recognise that they're stuck in traffic all day and that the waiting and that they wait too long to see a doctor and they rightly or wrongly blame that on, you know, you know, whatever kind of latest dog whistle the Conservatives were able to, to feed them. And we're not doing a good enough job, as you say, at, at actually addressing the root causes of what they're worried about. We just 
we just try to try to fire anybody who uh, who who raises a, 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 an opinion that we well, don't like. Well, this feels to me what's at the heart of what we're talking about, which is the idea that we have this great desire for simple solutions and things to be black and white, and really things are uh, neither simple in their solution, and they are neither black nor white. They are various shades of grey. I mean, even just in a comical way, the idea of when you talk about immigration, right? The idea is that the conservatives, you know, Pauline Hanson wants to, you know, close the border, not let anyone come in. And if you don't like that, then you're like, no, we should be open borders. Of course, we'd never want to shut the borders. Then a global pandemic happens and you're like, shut the fucking borders. Do not let anybody into this country. That is actually a really, really good idea. So. <laughs> yeah, I know. And also everyone's like, you couldn't possibly shut the borders. I mean, it's not possible. Australia is, a, you know, is an open society. And they're like, fucking shut the borders immediately. Yeah. Build a wall yeah, around the entire possible. country. In fact, build a wall <laughs> in between right. individual states. We're not just shutting the borders <laughs> to immigrants. We're shutting them from people from New South Wales wanting to go to fucking Queensland. So sorry. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Uh, right. So I, I mean, oh, no. so this is very interesting to me. Everything that you're saying is very interesting because I think that it does then become uncomfortable, and I wonder why it has become so uncomfortable to admit that things are, you know, just everybody has a different experience. Every like, as in, everybody has different values, different priorities. Then everybody has a different experience in life. You know, we're aware with terms like privilege, and I think they can be very important terms. By the way, you know, recognizing what privilege you have in a situation. But what we're really talking about there is, you know, older concepts as well, like class and you know, monarchy and all these sort of things have had some mm. level of separating people in our society. Whether it be, you know, in a you don't belong here, you don't fit in here. This is the normative way we live in our. Society society or whether it be through legislation, whether it be through, you know, just exclusion in a variety of other ways. So everything is messy and everything is grey and yet we have this overwhelming desire for it not to be that and for us not to admit that. And if any politician stands up publicly during an election and says, you know, no, 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 we don't have the solution. There's a few solutions. Like you see it at the moment with the way that, you know, state leaders are handling the pandemic. People getting mad at them not knowing to handle something that no one's ever been through Mm. and no one knew was happening Mm. like, you know, six months. Six months ago, this country was on fucking fire. That was our problem. The country was on fire. And now we're not even thinking about that anymore (laughs) because we have to deal with this thing that we still don't understand. So this is what I wanted to get to. Why is it that we live in a world now because we do, where we want these black and white solutions, where we want these, you know, incredible, you know, talking points and simplicity of ideas. Why? How did we get to this? Well, I mean, you're on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. But you don't use it. Not really. I mean, I use yeah. it in regard to seeing what other people are thinking. And I would certainly use it to elevate ideas and other people's voices that I respond to or that I'm interested in. Um, but I don't, there's not a lot that gets me really, you know, kind of engaging in the theatre of it yeah. anymore, no. Okay, so I mean, I think part of it is social media. I think part of it is the pace of us responding to everything and having a quick take in real time rather than letting things settle for a while. Like, I think the, I think the speed 
Uh, in, in the next episode of Uncomfortable Conversations, I'm talking to Sam Harris, the neuroscientist and philosopher from the States, about like, well, I'm mainly about the nature of consciousness and why it, why we are self-aware at all, which is an interesting question. How it comes to be that that matter from a star ends up assembling itself into a uh, in, into a, a brain that is capable of be, of of feeling anything at all in the first place. But another thing that we talk about is how like the 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 pace of communication actually changes the nature of the communication. It doesn't just speed it up. It actually alters the way that it functions. So the need, for example, for a corporation to promptly respond to a, an apparent transgression by one of its employees before the Twitter mob becomes, you know, snowballs into something that's going to engulf the corporation changes that corporation's due diligence in looking into what that employee actually did. So that's a complicated way of saying people get fired for do, for saying silly shit online that they would never get fired for because corporations are so risk averse. Um, you know, would it be and and you must feel this like have you felt have you felt in your performing that there are any uh, taboos that you have to skirt around more in recent years than you would have had to 10 years ago? Not in a way that I don't enjoy. So there are ways that I speak about things. There are ways that I approach topics. There are certain sort of jokes that I just wouldn't do anymore, but I don't feel robbed by not being able to do them anymore. In fact, I feel evolved by getting to, you know, a level of understanding or the world changing in a way that makes me engage in the issue in a different way. I always find that that's evolutionary. You know, George Carlin didn't start being George Carlin. He became George Carlin. And the reason he works so well, he works so much better even today, so much of what George Carlin said about the world stands up, is because George Carlin wasn't a 22-year-old stand-up comedian who wanted to be George Carlin. <laughs> yeah, George yeah, Carlin yeah. evolved into being George Carlin out of being a straight one-liner guy about getting you know engaged and interested in these issues and this worldview. He started having those views at an age where he had a great life experience and had seen a lot of the world, so was actually making informed opinions about what he thought about the world so there are things that I would not talk about anymore there are topics that I wouldn't talk about in the same way as I used to talk about them but I'm not one of those people who feels like any of that is a bad thing do you worry about copies of gigs where you did talk about them being judged by today's standards uh, I I worry uh, no I don't worry about it because often this this podcast but particularly my other podcast Tofop which we started ten years ago and we were emulating you know Kevin Smith's podcast Smogcast which was a favourite of ours at the time was you know the first th- there's some conversations on the first fifty or sixty episodes of that that I you know if they were just you know out there by themselves without any context there were things in there that I would not have been proud of the way that we approached issues or what we were talking about. We were trying to make a very late night, you know, internet sort of show that was like a secret club where you could say these things you couldn't say anywhere else. But do I feel that the podcast is worse now that we've evolved out of doing that style of material? No, I feel like it's better. And what I think that people have had an opportunity to do, the reason we never took down those old episodes was we say to people, listen backwards. 
and stop when you feel uncomfortable, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you feel stop when you feel uncomfortable. No, start when you feel uncomfortable. That's where the good stuff begins. No, but, yeah, well, no, I, I take, think that yeah. by the time you get to the uncomfortable stuff, you can see it for what it was, which was yep. what we but, believed 10 years ago and you can see what we believe now. And that's a very interesting thing to be able to do, see someone's evolution of thought. But well, by I mean, themselves... It's very noble. Yes. It's noble of you, Will, to ascribe to all of humanity the maturity to be able to do that. And I hope that uh, humanity continues to uphold itself admirably when it comes to those old episodes but you know as well as I do that there's a certain cohort of people where if there was someone who wanted to bring you down they could very easily take out of context something from one of those episodes and uh, you know if there was if there was some sustained campaign against Will Anderson um, you're the most likeable man in, in, in showbiz so there wouldn't be but if there was then they would be able to do an awful they would be able to unleash an awful lot of social media mobs on you from taking something out of context and making it seem like you're inappropriate. I, I, I agree. Um, I think that there is definitely a bad side to that. You know, there's hunting in a pack side of it without nuance that is, you know, not particularly healthy for us. And I certainly, and I think you agree with this, I'm not a big fan of the archaeological nature of outrage, which is the idea of going back and going, hey, Friends is really problematic. We have to cancel Friends. <laughs> Whereas you're like, yeah, come Summer Friends is pretty problematic. But there's an example of what the world looked like at that time. And, mm. you know, it's good that we're not making shows today that are making those same sort of jokes. But, you know, there's no need to chuck it all in a bin and pretend it didn't happen. So yeah. I... Personally, as an artist, and you have to think about this all the time, right? And and obviously, they look, people wouldn't have to go looking very hard to cancel me. I could point them out. In fact, the, the best way for them, <laughs> the best way for them to find out all the problematic things that I've said and I've done is to listen to my shows because over the years I've talked about all those problematic things, and when I realised they were problematic and what my reaction to that has been, it's all there for people to understand and I don't see myself as some sort of perfect person so who is you know like if there's old stuff that is you know there to be criticized then criticize it and I am fine with that but yes I do agree with you that we don't achieve a lot by then going you're cancelled now um, we don't care about any of the evolution that you've had. We're only going to hold you account to this thing you did 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 50 years ago. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I did a show at the Melbourne Comedy Festival last year uh, called U2 with a hashtag before it as a, as a nod to the Me Too movement, uh, not as a way of poo-pooing women's rights, which I'm a huge supporter of and I'm a big supporter of that movement, but as a, as a way of pointing the finger back at ourselves when we get a little bit too self-certain about how wrong other people are for their misdeeds. And I was talking there about, you just mentioned archaeology. Yeah, I was talking about outrage archaeology, where you dig, you, you hunt through, you, there are sort of professional umbrage takers who will, who will, who go hunting for things to get offended by, and will then find them. And I, I, I had a bit in the show about like, all of the things that we currently believe and do, which our descendants will regard as being morally horrendous. I mean, uh, you know, everybody who's listening to this who eats industrially farmed meat knows on some level that they're complicit in something awful, in the senseless torture of many sentient creatures simply because they prefer the taste of that than the taste of, of you know, non-meat products or because they want to save a few, a few cents per kilo of flesh over organic farm-raised 
meat. And I have no doubt that in 50 years or 100 years, you know, people will, will go, how, how on earth did anybody think that that was okay with the same way that we look back on the behaviour of the, of the past? I mean, you look back at the way that you look at, you look at a newspaper from the 1920s, let alone the 1950s or even 1970s, and you look at the way they talk about women and about Indigenous Australians or about black people. I mean, it's, it's just rife with the most appalling kinds of, of casual bigotry that we would now regard as, as being totally beyond the pale. And the idea that we're somehow morally, individually morally enlightened for not speaking that way and that they were morally flawed for speaking that way when in the context of their time, of course, they were just doing exactly what everyone around them was doing, which is what most of us now are also doing. Is betrays a kind of a real total lack of generosity and historical perspective. I think so. Before we, you know, start digging things up from the past, and I'm look, I'm not at all. I totally agree with you that it's a lot more interesting to play in these spaces, being aware of our own privilege and being sensitive to these conversations, than to just be like, I'm not, I'm going to be politically incorrect because it's provocative and nobody can tell me what to do. So let's laugh at trans people. Like that's not good either. That's there's nothing smart or interesting about about that. Um, my concern is the is the is the kind of historical is the imposition of what we currently regard as being norms onto people and eras where those norms were not... I mean, even just a couple of years ago... I mean, even... I, I was in hot water last year during the Melbourne Comedy Festival because someone dug up an old podcast that I'd done in New York. I've, I've been living in New York for most of my adult life and I came back here a couple of years ago. And in New York, I had a podcast which I would tape in bars in Brooklyn where three people would... Uh, would join me on stage and we'd banter about the week's news and drink cocktails and there was a live audience and they'd ask questions. I mean, this is a late-night panel alcohol fueled Brooklyn show and I did a, an episode with some of my African-American mates and we were talking about the N-word and who can use it and when you can use it and, like, it's it's a very laid-back conversation about that and we didn't use the fr- the term the N-word. They would have found it infantilizing. They would have found it condescending. Uh, I had total permission in that context to be using that word. And obviously I would never use it as a slur, as a racial slur. I would never call anyone that that horrible word. But talking about the parameters of when it's appropriate and not, it just seemed, it would have seemed bizarre. And, and, it, and it would have actually given the word more power to go around talking about the word without even saying it, Right. So there's this thing from a few years ago in its context and I get a call from ABC Publicity saying uh, the Australian <laughs> newspaper, I think it was the Australian, I can't remember what news, newspaper, one of the biggest big newspapers is doing a story about things that, you know, presenters and broadcasters and hosts in Australia can say or can't say and what the appropriate use of language is. And this is on the day of my first preview. Well, I'm like, I have to go to my first tech run and I've got a radio interview. I've got a string of radio interviews lined up. My head isn't in the game. And I have to have this conversation now with a media journo who is publishing how I am. I just love saying the N-word. So the piece comes out and, and I get a lot of emails even from people from colleagues of mine who are saying you just want to you just you now i know that you're a racist you're just trying to find any excuse to say the word i'm like well no 
<laughs> there is a principled objection to constantly going around saying the phrase, the N-word, and that was articulated well in the episode by my black friends, if you cared to listen, which you obviously haven't haven't listened. And it's this kind of... It's this kind of... It's the... I guess the severance of intent, of the person's intent from the consequences that I find troubling. The fact that it, it there is no longer a... There no longer seems to me to be... Uh, it, the, part, the, the conversation no longer even includes the question of what the person was trying to impart, what the person was intending to convey, whether the person was meaning to do harm. Now so, it's just you, you mouth-phrased a magic word and the magic word made me feel bad, therefore so, okay. you're so a racist. Is that our fault? Is that the news media's fault? Because obviously we live in a world now where if you read most of the popular news media, you can't even from the headline tell what's contained in the story and then you go to the more popular, you know, news media that does not care about there being any relation between the two or they care as you clicking on that article in the first place. So there will be some sensational claim made in the headline that actually doesn't reflect anything of what the person has actually said in reality. Is it the news media's fault? Is it our fault as consumers? Like where where have we got to this point? Who is leading who? Are we as consumers leading the news media? They're, they're coming to us or is it the media running ahead of the pack and sort of influencing the way that we respond to things? Well, I mean, I think it's a snake eating its tail. I think it's both. We're, we're, in, a, we're in a washing machine spin cycle where the media is chasing the clicks. And again, I come back to social media. I don't think you'd be having this with if you didn't have social media because I think the, the imperative to write a catchy headline and get, pe- get the clicks is... Uh, and and then also get the shares. I mean, remember what social media is is doing to us. This is not a it's not a blank page where people just share things and thing and things naturally bubble up to the surface of your Facebook feed. Because, you know, because of their own virtue, they bubble up there according to algorithms that are programmed by very clever twenty two year old skateboarders in Silicon Valley uh, who get paid shit tons of money to be able to write code which is going to encourage things that are that are highly shareable to get highly shared. So, I mean, the, the currency is how much time you spend on the site and the currency is how many likes and shares and comments things have. Now, what gets likes and shares and comments? Obviously, things that stimulate you. Like there's a, there's a, there's a myth that I hear sometimes peddled about social media, which is, oh, it just puts you inside your bubble. It's, you know, we're all in our bubbles. We're inside an echo chamber of our own feed. And I sometimes talk in this way because there's a certain utility to understanding that your feed is not a natural, like 30,000 foot snapshot of the landscape. It's your little echo chamber. But that can sometimes overlook the fact that your feed is not just things that you like. It's anything that's going to get a rise out of you. So it's some things that you like and it's some things that you fucking hate. So it's but and and it's it, that like a thing that a thing that enrages you if you're a green supporter then it's not that your feed is only like Walid Ali columns just to go back to our earlier example. You also see the Andrew Bolt stuff because you hate fuck it. You're like I fucking hate Andrew. I knew I hated him. I knew he was a fucking cunt. And similarly, if you're a One Nation supporter, it's not that you don't know that Walid Ali exists. His stuff pops up because people are sharing that and commenting on that as well. So there's an intentional stratification or extremification of points of view that hollows out the middle and makes consensus building harder, which is what I'm sort of trying to do in my career, I suppose, is reject that and find some common ground. So when you say who's to blame, is it the media, is it us, it's, it's a 
it's an anti-virtuous spin cycle of the media chasing us and us chasing the the media. And I think the only way to to sort of get out of it is for us to notice the gotcha, like to notice, oh, okay, here's how I'm being manipulated by this ecosystem. And when I'm being encouraged, when I see an article about this person who said the N-word and I'm tempted to go, that means that they're racist, just notice the model here. Like we've seen this movie play out before. We know this game that's being played. It may be that there's a real there there, and I think part of the problem is that now, <laughs> like, the fact that there actually are racist shitwads, like, is, is it complicates the fact that if someone gets accused of being a racist shitwad, you can't automatically say, oh, I'm sure this is just cancel culture gone mad, because that would make you Rowan Dean or, you know, one of these Sky News blowhards who sees cancel culture and political correctness gone mad in absolutely everything. And that is its own set of set of problems because there has to be a space for nuance and sort of compromise and for being able to sort the wheat from the chaff and damn people who deserve to be damned and not condemn people who don't. But that takes... So who's to blame? Anyone who leaps to judgment, anyone who doesn't pause, anyone who doesn't give another person the benefit of the doubt, anyone who sees... A headline, or sees a word, or sees a quotation, and thinks that that is the that's the final story. Okay, so there's that. How do we engage in this world? So what you said is the reward system is set up. If I, I know this with this podcast, and there's often been moments where this show makes the news. When it makes the news, it only ever makes the news because some reporter has listened to it and decided to turn it into news. It has never made the news because I send out a press release about it because one of my policies of the show is regardless of who's on and what they say, people can find it here on the podcast and they can listen to it in context, which is what we were talking about. Mm. And then they can decide one way or the other, whether they, you know, agree, disagree or offended or not offended by what was said. So there's that. That's my contribution. But I know that I would get more clicks, you know, downloads of the podcast if I, you know, put out a press release, if I got a little write-up in the paper. Those are all things that, when it is done against my will, always benefits the show, which is one of those weird things <laughs> where you're like, oh, fuck, I'm on the Daily Mail. But you also know this is going to be a big download. Yeah, but episode. also... <laughs> so- <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you, people who thought you were being mean to me, who've only really actually helped me out. It's the same when I was smoking uh, weed on Doug Benson's show, getting uh, high, getting Doug with high. He's a talk show where you smoke pot during the talk show, and we're in yeah. LA where it's legal, and uh, you know this is a popular show that a whole bunch of big stars have appeared on. But in the Murdoch press back in Australia, they just took stills from it as if they mm. got photos of me smoking a bong through the window <laughs> of my house or something, and ran it in the newspaper and for them it was trying to be this scandal trying to get me sacked and all these sort of things for doing a legal thing in a place where it was legal and uh i um it was amazing because i assumed i would get some negative you know um commentary from people around it but i didn't i got a lot of questions from people i got some really interesting emails and i got a lot of positive support for it but more than that what Rupert Murdoch did was got me a full page, page three ad in the highest selling newspapers in Australia that basically said to anyone who comes to my shows, offer me weed. So <laughs> I have never again gone anywhere and done a show without somebody going, hey man, would you like some weed? And I have Rupert Murdoch to thank yeah. for that. So, uh, But yeah. the, the biggest yeah. thing that I wanted to talk to about everything that you were saying there was this idea of 
you know, you, you've explored this in a show, so I, I want to hear your you know thoughts about it, which is the algorithm, uh, algorithmic nature of how our society is actually structured at the moment because it's more than just on on Twitter or Facebook and the level of engagement. It infects, as you said, the news media who are measuring their stories now on, you know, how many clicks go to that story, how many people, you know, read that story. That's where the ads are going to go based on the algorithm there. You know, if you're interested in an article, you're going to get more of that article. If you People understand that if they mention Nikes, they'll get a whole bunch of ads for Nikes, but I think they don't have the same understanding that if they mention they don't like immigrants, they're suddenly going to have a lot more articles about how <laughs> other people don't like immigrants and immigrants are bad on their feet as well. So we have yeah. this brand new society that we live in where we have this, you know, almost AI-like, you know, supercomputer of algorithms trying to affect our very emotions every minute of every day. You know, the, the, the colour design, the way your eye moves across mm. the screen, your level of engagement, the fact that mm. the eye tunes algorithm uh you know rewards engagement when you ask somebody to rate your podcast after the podcast it really doesn't matter if they rate it a one star or a five star it's just important that they're engaged with it enough that they went and rated it in the first place so we are living Mm. in a society Mm. where we have become puppets to algorithms like you said designed by 22 year old skateboarders in silicon valley so talk to me a little about that world how you see it has influenced our world and whether Mm. there is any escape from it well i understand the logic of it i should say to begin with i understand the initial aspiration of what they were trying to do like engagement sounds benign if you wanted to measure how uh, whether a, a piece of communication is uh, is useful, you would judge it on whether or not people are, people want to talk about it and people want to like it and people want to share it with other people. There's a certain common sense uh, aspect to that. So I don't think there's anything nefarious going on here in the way that it was originally set up. I mean, Facebook, the funny thing about Facebook is, you know, you used to be able to, like, it's so woven into the backdrop to our lives not just facebook but all of the of the as as you call it the algorithmization of uh, of kind of the media that we don't even notice that it's constructed so the infinite scroll for example is something that had to be invented the like button itself had to be invented when facebook was created there was you you didn't like things and and you didn't comment on things and there was no infinite scroll so you could actually reach the end of facebook like it sounds ridiculous now but you used to go to a laptop I and mean, you used to go to a desktop and you used to type www.facebook.com and you, there would be a page and you would get down to the end of it and go all right that's it i just finished facebook i've seen all of the things that anyone wanted to share it was an intentional creation, an invention, to make it seem like an endless stream of interesting content, determined to be interesting on the basis of, as you say, whether or not other people are sharing it, chatting about it, liking it, hating it. You know, now you can even put an angry face. That'll still bump it up in the in the feed. But the unintended consequence of that, which is no longer unintended because they now know exactly what they're doing and they should be held responsible for it, is... That, as I said earlier, things that things that get a rise out of you are the things that are uh, that you end up seeing, and this makes it extremely difficult for us all to have a common view of what's going on in the world. I think, like the bad thing about the way the media used to be, is that it used to be 
an old, white, authoritative, straight man talking at you for half an hour in the evening and telling you what was right. Like, can you believe that Walter Cronkite used to end his broadcast in the United States, the greatest newsreader of all time, by saying, and that's the way it is, and, like, that was the end of the show. That's the way it is. I mean, you would laugh in 2020 if someone with a straight face gave you 30 minutes of content and then said, that's the way it is. Good night, everybody. You can go to bed now. You know everything that needs to be known. That's the way it is. And yet, whilst I don't think that was a better world necessarily than this world in which we've all got our chaotic tsunami deluge waterfall ocean of different bits and bobs flying at us from every direction like we're a character out of tornado... I do think there was a, I do think we're missing something in that you can have conversations with people who have a totally different worldview from you because they're consuming totally different inputs. Um I don't know that there's a solution to that other than to try to rely on traditional sources of media and to become more literate about what's credible and what's not. One of the things I love about having a voice on the ABC is that I do think Australia still has a common platform which the vast majority of us trust. Uh, Much as conservatives on Sky News might claim that the ABC is a left-wing bubble, there is actually a large uh, kind of deep well of trust in the the ABC in Australia that doesn't exist in a comparable way for anything in the United States, for example, where I think this problem is is much, much bigger. uh, so yeah, I don't, so in other words, I don't think the algorithm is escapable, and I think that the corrosion of the media model for for newspapers and for news gatherers is something that obviously is not going to be changed because you're never going to get classified ads back. So the internet is here to stay, and you're going to have to find interesting and compelling ways to monetize sensible media production. I mean, I, I hope that my podcast is, some, is you know, look, a show like Joe Rogan's show, for example, on which I was a, a frequent guest when I was in the States, I think I did it about six or seven times. He is, it's the most popular podcast in the world, and he has three-hour-long conversations with a weird range of different people about anything and everything. And he's uncancelable because he's not employed by anybody. And that, to me, is a testament to the fact that there's certainly an appetite for 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 people to receive the kinds of to consume the kinds of media that an algorithm wouldn't automatically direct you towards and that a sexy headline wouldn't automatically get you to so i think that i think in 20 years time we'll look back on the way the media is today and go wow we just ha- really hadn't figured out how to deal with the new world yet yeah i listen to a lot of joe rogan and suddenly i got a lot of advertisements on instagram for elk meat i'm not really sure what the connection was but uh, on this he's a good hunter he loves his bow hunting does old joe on this show, I like to ask people if they have a life philosophy of any kind, to work, to love, to anything really, but is there some sort of guiding principle that you can uh, talk about? Well, I love travel and I think travel and I think it's a good time to talk about the virtue of travel because we can't uh, in the pandemic. But one of my favourite guiding quotes was always that the the world is a book and he who doesn't travel reads only one page. I think immersing yourself in uncomfortable places 
as well as uncomfortable conversations, is one of the great virtues, putting yourself outside your comfort zone. Like I, I have no more contempt for any worldview than the worldview that says, why would I, why would I leave my, my hometown? Like I've got everything I need right here. It's the best place in the world. That's fine. You're allowed to believe that after you've gone and seen it everywhere else and done Dorothy's adventure, and then you can say there's no place like home. But you're not allowed to say there's no place like home until you've left home. Um, so I think stretching, I think to me my guiding philosophy would be stretch yourself, get out of your comfort zone, recognise your own limitations, have some intellectual humility, uh, extend as much empathy to other people and other cultures as you possibly can, and that includes extending empathy to people who you might be tempted by your peers to accuse of being bigots because they they have their own worldview and we're all fallible in our own fallen way. So go out and explore and have fun. I think uh, I feel grateful for many reasons growing up in the country and I've moved back to the country again. But uh, one of those is that I never quite bought into the idea that, you know, these people were necessarily racists or bigots because something that comes up a lot on this show is the idea of the inclusivity of rural communities. They might be very suspicious of outsiders, but one of those one of those outsiders becomes an insider. They are almost immediately adopted into small communities out of necessity, if nothing mm. else. You know, small communities are constantly looking for what benefit can this person bring to this small community? It does a small community no good to have people involved in the small community that are seen to be of no benefit to the community, even <laughs> if that's the local Sudanese kid playing in the ruck and in the centre in the, you know, ruck in the AFL and centre in the basketball, and you guys are now part of the community. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's right, exactly. <laughs> um, You're all right after all. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's interesting, and and I mean, it comes back. It reminds me of something you said earlier, Will, which is. You mentioned class when you were talking about blacks and whites and nuances and like not and everybody being a little bit you know there are there being so many things that we sort of don't talk about in uh, uh, in sophisticated ways and I think that's right that like there's there's a certain kind of upper crustness I think one of the things that bothers me about the sort of the cultural, the culture wars at the moment is they're they're very hyper intellectualized. They're not, they're very removed from the the people who you grew up with. The interface of actual people in the bush and their relationships, their race relations, for example. I mean, there's a certain way of talking about, say, gender and race that you're trained into if you go to an elite university. If you graduate from your cultural studies class at uh, a sandstone university in Australia, then you have certain preconceptions about people who don't talk that way about race and gender. And you will judge people, a, a bloke. If there's a bloke from the, from the bush who talks about things in, a, in an unenlightened way, who doesn't talk about structural uh, racism, who doesn't understand really what you mean by patriarchy, who doesn't you know think in those terms, but is salt of the earth and is just the nicest guy you'd ever meet and is genuinely not racist, he will come across as racist to the kinds of people who I surround myself with and you probably surround yourself with. Like he will appear to be racist because he hasn't learnt the language, the academic language of talking about race. And this comes back to sort of part of what like class, we never talk about class. I mean, this is actually a class difference where a lot of this sort of posturing, this um, 
finger-wagging, woke, politically correct nonsense is actually a class dynamic where people who are wealthy enough and educated enough to be in the in-crowd like to lord it over people who who aren't. So I'm conscious of that. And I'm also conscious of the way that race is superimposed onto class. So a lot of what might get perceived as being racism is actually uh, class antag- antagonism as, as well, that poverty, you know, if you... If you, I mean, to take the American context, for example, if all of a sudden you just shook the snow globe of American society and wealth was evenly distributed completely, then I think a lot of what people understand to be racism would dissipate because it's actually people uh, looking down their nose to poor people and black people are disproportionately poor. So, like, there's a lot of complicated stuff that gets ironed out by the simplicity of the conversation. And I, I wish we could talk in a more complicated way about all of the dynamics that are going on. Um, yeah. it's in, So one of the things that I've only come to an understanding of recently, and it's pertinent to what you were just saying, is that I grew up in a place where I certainly did not fit in. But one of the things I've always found it hard to express is that I also fit in absolutely fine i was someone who was like oh this is not for me this is not what i think about the world the way that i see the world yet i feel very comfortable in this world i didn't feel i didn't i didn't have a miserable childhood even though i felt like you know i wasn't represented by you know the people surrounding me i've lived most of my life you know like even when i could have moved back to melbourne you know i moved to sydney for for media jobs and when I could have moved back to Melbourne and lived in the comedy community I chose not to because I liked the idea of living in a suburb where nobody knew who I was and the people that I talked to on a day-to-day basis weren't the sort of people that I would talk to when I went to work and probably the two years of my life I felt like funnily enough the time I felt like a fish out of water was when I wasn't a fish out of water my two years recently living back in Melbourne in the heart of what it is that I do were the two years that I felt the least satisfying in my life I loved living mm. in LA when I was a fish out of water. I love living in the country again when I'm a fish out of water. I enjoy being a fish out of water. I enjoy being surrounded by people who have different opinions to the opinions I have. Where I live now is a very different type of country to the one I grew up in. The the opinions might have been, you know, what we consider to be old-fashioned ideas where I grew up with, whereas the part of the country I've moved to now, you'd more describe as new fashioned ideas a lot of people are not so keen on vaccinations and think that magic is more important than science so you know dealing with another range of conversations at you know parties or in social events or you know wearing a mask in the community i live in where people don't even wear shoes to the shops has been you know (laughs) confronting your shoes on your face i mean it's better than nothing so um it's it's an interesting interesting concept and I mean, I do think that part of there is a there is a wisdom in a, it. Like it seems sounds like such a cliche, and I feel like such a <laughs> such a new father approaching middle age uh, to to say such a thing. But like, there are things that our grandparents knew that they knew for a reason that their grandparents knew and that their grandparents knew. And uh, the the world is moving so fast at the moment, and social media is keeping us on our toes so quickly that I don't think we should be too hasty to throw overboard some of the sort of timeless things about being nice to your neighbour and giving other people the benefit of the doubt. Now, to be fair, our grandparents also knew all kinds of horrifyingly racist things. But once you are in... It's an interesting question about whether or not... I was having a conversation with someone actually on Twitter about whether or not old people were more or less tolerant 
than young people. And I was saying that old people are more tolerant and forgiving towards their in-crowd and less tolerant and forgiving towards their out-crowd. So it's just a game of getting people onto the in-crowd. In, in um, and I think that uh, young people are more tolerant towards people in the out-crowd and less tolerant towards people in the in-crowd in a strange way. And I completely understand your your love of being an outsider. I mean, my my decade in New York City as an outsider was the hi- total highlight of my life. And it's such a it's such a roiling, uh, a difficult to pin down place with so many unusual freaks from all over the joint that everybody there is an outsider to to some extent, certainly in the circles that that I was swimming in. And I think that's something very useful to. Uh, to, to cling on to and the weird thing that you notice when you surround yourself with outsiders and when you are an outsider is that the stuff that you all have in common is the big stuff is like the really really important stuff uh and it's the the kind of narcissism of small differences that that, that you get obsessed by when you're surrounded by when you're living in melbourne with your you know group thinky latte sipping elites who are all debating about like the very very small differences between your political opinions that get blown up the moment you actually go backpacking through Pakistan and realize oh okay we probably don't need to worry too much about cultural appropriation because uh, it doesn't matter in the Hindu Kush I think there's a practicality of having to get along with people who you disagree with also I mean the other day the yeah. pl- the, there was a plumber over I've got a water tank uh, you know an outlet tank that needed some plumbing and uh, you know not something that I could do my Myself, so I had a man over, kept appropriate social distance over the fence, which I probably would have done from somebody fixing my sewage tank, regardless of whether we were in COVID or not. But it was an appropriate excuse, but still making, you know, chat over the, you know, the fence and engaging mm. with this person. And he just, very nice guy, but just in passing referred to it as a scamdemic. And... <laughs> One of those moments where you're just like, you know what? He's already here. He's a good plumber. It don't really matter. It's fine. We're socially distanced from each other. Like there is a practicality Mm. in just having to live amongst and get along with people that you disagree with that perhaps... Did you you want to talk to him about it? Were you interested in it? No. Well, if we're at a party... No, I've been to some social gatherings here with people who certainly you know think that you know the 5g towers are causing the coronavirus and Mm. you know you know similar sort of ideas that all fit into that you know grab bag of new agey thinking so just because you're like yoga your brain goes out your fucking ass apparently but like (laughs) i'm happy to engage on whatever level that they want to engage mostly if they just want to talk about something i'm happy to listen you know, I don't feel the need to, you know, poke and prod too much to... No. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. I would have liked to have a conversation about about what he he means. I, I'm, I'm very frustrated and bothered when people have a rigid doctrinaire uh, opinion that they've got all their little facts to support. I'm not interested in having a conversation with them. Like, you know, I've spoken to some 9-11 truthers and, uh, you know, they've always got to come back. Their mind is made up, so there's no point in talking to them. And same with same with anti-vaxxers usually. But with something like someone who says scamdemic, uh, like I was on a ferry and a, there was a woman who was talking, <laughs> was talking to her, uh, her partner about how this it's like oh it's like we're in Nazi Germany it's like we're in Nazi Germany and I was really tempted to have a conversation because I'm interested I'm, I'm I'm genuinely interested in how people who see the world differently from me 
see it. I'm not interested in your stupid non-facts about 5G and your anti-science, but I'm I'm interested, I'm certainly open to having a conversation about whether the trade-offs in uh, making us all wear masks are, are, are worth it. You know, I'm interested in hearing different people's ideas about things. I probably would have, I probably would have been that annoying guy when your plumber was there, being like, "Oh no, he's another guy. He just, he only wants to talk about the bloody pen. Everyone wants to talk about politics to me." I'd, I'd sit him down and have a cuppa. Okay, so I'm interested in that though because I, I, I also agree that I, there's something I find super fascinating about listening to someone who I don't agree with, and I'm really swayed. You know, I mostly have the same opinion at the end that as I went into, you know, in, in regard to those sort of things. There are plenty of issues that I can be, you know, persuaded, you know, by somebody who knows more about it than I know about it. But mm. on things like that where I, I'm i pretty clear about what it is that I think is true and what it is that I believe and the sort of, you know, sources that I trust that have told me that these things are important that are probably, you know, different to the sources that you're about to quote in, you know, the little screed that you have. I'm... I'm very fascinated to hear that, but is that in itself just a thing that comes from a position of privilege in that I have no stake in the game. It is easy for me to, you know, not worry about what your opinion on vaccines is because I don't have any kids. I don't have to send them to a local school. I don't have any stake in that <laughs> no, game. No, you but know? you do have stake. You care. I mean, you do. You do care about the future of the country. You care about care, care about other human beings. I do, but that's a different stake than you being personally connected to. You know, like I think you know a lot of the time to use anti-vax as when I when I try to have empathy for anti-vaxxers, I think at the Heart of what gets many of the people into it is a fear over the safety of their child. That really what they want is, I love my child and I want my child to be safe and well and have a wonderful life. And that's what's led me to this completely incorrect, in my opinion, and in much more qualified people than my opinion, um... Uh, my opinion doesn't actually matter. Uh, the opinion <laughs> of people who are experts in their field matters, and I I choose to trust them because that's the way I live my life. But I mean, even their opinion doesn't really matter. The facts, the facts. Right? Yeah. Don't, the, I don't give a fuck the, what their the opinion facts. is. Just tell me what the <laughs> yeah. facts are that yeah. you came up with, science boy. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, but I am. I, you know, I can see where some of that belief comes from. It probably comes from a really good place. It's just a misguided good place. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's about a worldview. Like if you're if you're a curious person and you're interested in in conversing and understanding, then I've got time for you. I I, I really do. I mean, I I am interested in. I was just thinking. Um, not anti-vax. There's a better example. Uh, not climate change either. I don't know. I mean, I think I think it comes down to whether or, I think it comes down to whether or not people are actually interested in searching for uh, for truth, or whether or not they're interested in imposing their uh, their beliefs. I really do. Oh, the, here's the example, and you can tighten that up if you want to in the edit. I refuse. Um, I've already wasted my <laughs> editing moment on that fucking beep you made me put in earlier, so I have no time to tighten things up, sir. You can just put in a long 20-second beep while I'm trying to remember. I'll just I'm beep thinking. that bit as well. It's like, gee, that, that, was, that was actually a really terrible time for him to start being really racially insensitive. Right, exactly. If you want to get your tabloid headlo- headline about the Josh Zepps episode, just do it where he, he had a brain fart and didn't say anything for 20 seconds. Every 
every time you no, pause think- or the internet drops out, I'm just going to put a beef in like you've gone on a Kramer-esque tirade at a comedy club. Exactly. You don't want to know what Josh was saying during those silences, the things he said about Asians. Uh, no, I was going to I was going to talk about astrology because okay, uh, yeah, nice. a, a, fr- a, a friend of mine, she's a big astrologer and, uh, you know, she does tarot and stuff like that. And for her, she's not that she really believes believes. She's just like, you know, it's fun. There's a little bit of truth in it. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not true. Uh, but, you know, it's it's a way to pass the time. But she sort of does. I think she just sort of says that because she's a bit embarrassed about it. But she actually does. She behaves as if she she believes. And I've tried to put my finger on why that bothers me because it really does. Like it deeply offends me almost in a way that's more than a fundamentalist Christian or a fundamentalist anything where I sort of feel like if you're going to be irrational, own it, you know, like have some internal consistency. Uh, I sort of have almost have more respect for a an Islamic fundamentalist suicide bomber who I'm like, all right, this is what you believe. You really, really believe it. You're behaving as if you believe it. And clearly, if you did live in the world that the Quran literally describes, and if you believed that the universe was created in such a in such a in such a manner, then it makes total sense for you to do what you're doing. Uh, you know, Godspeed. I completely agree with you. I'll fight you till the death. But there's an internal consistency in what you believe. Whereas the sort of foggy-headed, vaguely superstitious uh, attitude of the astrologer, I, I think it's that it, it sort of undermines my capacity to even converse with you on a factual basis of right or wrong. It's almost like there is no right or wrong. Like, what would be the agreed criteria by which we would even judge whether or not you're full of shit? Like, we can't even agree on that, you know, because you keep saying it's just, it's just a bit of fun and it's just a game. And as a science, as a science nerd, that, that that makes me like. There's a great book by Carl Sagan called A Demon Haunted World, and another good one by Richard Dawkins called Unweaving the Rainbow, which are sort of long kind of almost quasi-religious poems or odes to the beauty and majesty of knowing and the utility of believing that we can understand and comprehend the universe and uh, the importance of having some level of reverence towards our capacity to know. Like Einstein said, you know, the, the amazing thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible at all. And that to me, you asked what's a guiding philosophy in addition to sort of getting outside your comfort zone and traveling and giving people a benefit of the doubt, it would be to have a, a certain amount of respect, gratitude and awe for our capacity to understand the world. And when people piss that up against a wall and sort of dismiss it and play with it and live in a society that benefits from the bounty that science and engineering have given us and use that those luxuries as a platform on which to shit all over reason and rationality, uh, that offends me. <laughs> I find that offensive. And, and so that, that squishy anti-vaxxer kind of astrological thing... Uh, I'd sooner have I'd sooner have dinner with Israel Folau and talk about gay rights than than try to delve into that miasma because I, I I think it's likely a I think the the greater danger for the 21st century is not that we're all going to end up fundamentalists it's that we're going to end up mediocre 
quasi-scientific, quasi-ideological, antagonistic little bands of disagreeable people who all have their own version of the truth and who cannot grapple with the big challenges of of the planet that we live on, who can't find consensus about climate change. I mean, they're, they're just as bad in my book as climate deniers because they're equally un they're equally incapable of getting their arms around the 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 hard truths of of science and of the the world that we live in. And we have bit we have massive challenges from climate change to nuclear proliferation, which I don't think we're paying enough attention to to ob- the obvious political challenges that we've got all over the world. And if we're going to have a, a, an a, an arena like a in, in which we can actually converse about them, then we have to have some agreed facts. And so, I yes, I have a lot of disrespect to for muddle-headed people who don't think that the importance of of adhering to facts is worth their their time or consideration. Well, firstly, like the amount of like nuclear weapons in the world would only be problematic if the countries that had their nuclear weapons were run by absolute and unreliable <laughs> bananas people. So, firstly, that's fine. We're fine in that regard. New Zealand has all the nukes, right? That's it's it's just New Zealand and Belgium. It's good, guys. Everything will be fine. Okay, good. Good. Uh, But I think to your point around astrology, it's funny because I agree with you absolutely about the fact that the number one thing that's going wrong with the you know the planet at the moment is that you know opinion has you know replaced facts. There are some things that aren't open to being opinions they only rely on them being facts or them not being facts and opinion actually has nothing to do with it and every time we ask for somebody's opinion we're actually getting further away from what we need to do in the first place opinions are useless so i think there should be some things that yes are off i guess you know off the board for offering your opinion we just agree to a set of facts and we go by the facts but I'm not as mortally offended by the idea of harmless <laughs> things. To me, they feel like mostly harmless things like astrology because I don't think... It's it, the thin edge of the wedge, Will. I, uh, you give them an inch, so, they'll take a mile. You yeah. give them astrology, the next thing that, you know, they've they've got the... It's the it's Galile, your Galileo and they're, but see, that they're sort stringing of you up. Slippery slope arguing is, I think, problematic on all sides when we talk about this i think that (laughs) the idea that one leads to the other or one is directly responsible for the other i think there's probably some truth in it you know there's probably a chance that if you don't vaccinate your kids you're much more likely to believe in astrology as well i do think that there probably is but it isn't necessarily one being a step to the other and i think there are probably a whole bunch of people who believe in ghosts or astrology or you know other things that you know are not provable by science where the harm factor of them believing in those things things is i actually enjoy it i don't get offended by it in the same way as you do but uh, we're running out of time and there's questions i still Mm. want to ask you so um let's move it along a little one of the things that i ask all the time on this podcast and i think that we've already touched on it a couple of times but i'm interested to hear you know a bigger answer from you on this which is uh what happens when we die that's a question that i would have felt confident answering uh when I was a teenager and in my early 20s and I'm much less confident now uh, for some of the big issues that touch on this people should listen to my episode with Sam Harris Uh, it's interesting because what you're actually asking is what are we Mm -hmm. that is what I'm actually asking but I find what happens when we die an easy way into that broader conversation of what are we and then not just what are we but 
why are we mm. and how do we find meaning mm. in what we well, are? Let's not get so ahead of ourselves. Please talk about uh, all that. <laughs> <laughs> let's just stick with the what. Um, That's um, why I asked so that simple question for a start, it's funny, Josh. It's funny. You know, when I was a teenager, I, I discovered uh, Richard Dawkins and Carl Sagan and Richard Feynman and uh, and became uh, and Christopher Hitchens became a, uh, an annoyingly strident uh, rationalist and atheist. Ins- and insufferable. <laughs> you became insufferable. insufferable little shit, I believe, is the technical term. Uh, and uh, I, I was pretty... I, w- I would have said uh, with great certainty that uh, when you die, you go back to the same situation that you were in before you were born, uh, which is that you don't exist. And, you know, your your mind is contained in your brain, as we know, because if I drill a hole in your head and poke my finger into your brain, then all of a sudden you become a very different person. Uh, so you die and that's that. I still think that's... I still think that if I was a betting man, I'd put my money on that. But it has become much more interesting to me why, as I said earlier... I mean, the universe is almost entirely hydrogen, right? And the stars come together and they spew out these impurities, which are these more complicated elements... And uh, these more complicated compounds, I suppose I should say, and they, and they turn into us. And we are then capable, over the course of natural selection, over billions of years, of not just noticing and feeling, but also thinking and devising mathematical equations about how the stars came into being in the first place, and then to have conversations like this about why it all came into existence. I mean, I'm almost embarrassed to say that used to strike me as straightforward, and I think if you think that's straightforward, then there's nothing I can say to disabuse you of that idea because I remember what it was like to think that was straightforward. But it's now so obvious to me that that's not straightforward, uh, that that demands some kind of explanation, that uh, I, I, there's, it's almost like stepping into a parallel universe. And that parallel universe was partly created by drugs. That was partly psychedelic experiences in my youth, which are an instant way of... Uh, opening your mind to uh, a, a scale of experience that it hasn't had when not on psychedelics. I'm not encouraging people to do it necessarily. There are obvi- all of the obvious downsides, both legal and psychological, to doing psychedelics. Um, but they're a very quick way to um, to give you a glimpse into something else. And then there was actually an, a, a moment that had nothing to do with drugs where I was actually... I went alone. Talk about travelling. I went on a solo trip to Easter Island when I was living in New York and I rented this quad bike and I was just staying by myself at the foot of this, the big volcano on Easter Island. And I woke up before dawn and rode my quad bike up to the rim of the volcano and sat there and I watched the sun rise over the South Pacific. And I just had one of those epiphanies. I just had one of those spiritual moments where I was like, here I am. An organism sitting on the rim of a volcano that's hundreds of millions of years old in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by all this abundant life, which are all my cousins. We all share a common ancestor. And the sun looks like it's rising over the water, but it's actually that I'm falling towards it on a sphere and it's rising in the sky and this sphere is spinning around it and the whole thing is in an outer spiral arm of a galaxy 
of which there are hundreds of billions in the universe. And I was like, I mean, that's a mind fuck. So it's not good enough to just be like, oh, well, existence exists and I exist and we exist and that's that. And when we die, we die. Um, I'm certain that the explanations given for all of this in the ancient texts are wrong and were written by people who knew a lot less about the universe than we currently do. So none of this gives me any confidence in uh, Christianity or Islam or Judaism. It gives me a little bit of interest in, if not confidence in, some of the Eastern faiths because I think they're they're just just their pragmatic understanding of what it is like to be alive and what the nature of consciousness is and what it means to focus on things and how our minds play tricks by focusing endlessly on the regrets that we have from the past and the worries that we have about the future instead of actually interfacing with the now as I was in that moment on the volcano, which is really all that there is. I mean, your whole life is just a obviously a stream of nows and yet we never actually live in the now we spend our lives thinking about another time that never actually arrives because when it does arrive we're not experiencing it we're thinking about yet another time that conundrum that like for example buddhism is quite insightful on and that meditation has utility in bringing about um is probably as close as i can get to any understanding of what happens after we die so i i think if I were a betting man, I would give it a 3% chance that some amorphous sense of self is capable of enduring and finds itself then instantiated in some other, uh, if not being on this plane, then some other set of experiences in some other plane. Like maybe consciousness is some sort of finite quantity that we kind of dip into as humans and we're sort of spiritual creatures. But I, I just can't imagine that my own sense of self endures after the destruction of my physical brain. So I don't know what it looks like, but all I can say is everything that anyone has ever claimed to know about it is certainly wrong because they haven't been there. Uh, we need to finish up. I've got two more questions okay. and then we're done. Thank you so much no, for this. This has been brilliant fun. I've uh, absolutely loved this chat. I, I could talk to you for hours more, but I have to do another podcast because this is my world okay. now. I sit in my office and I do podcast after podcast to pretend that I'm still useful to society. Oh, so, you are. Oh, um, you are. What I am going to uh, ask you are these two questions. Firstly, uh, I have a magic wand. It's not actually magic and I don't actually have it, but for the sake of this question, let's pretend. And I can give you any skill in the world. You don't have to do Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 mm. hours to get this mm. skill. You just have it immediately. What would that skill or ability be? Can I be? fly? Absolutely. If you'd yeah, like I'll to. just fly. Why? I'm a huge aviation buff, always loved flying, wanted to be a pilot until I realised it wasn't very creative and was probably a bit boring because planes are too good and they can fly themselves. If if planes were still like they were in the 20s, I'd be a pilot. Uh, you know, highly dangerous and requiring incredible skill. Uh, I mean, I just think there's something incredibly majestic about... Uh, I mean, I suppose, I suppose after about after a couple of years, you'd get used to it, wouldn't you? And then it'd get a bit boring. But wouldn't that be true of any skill? Um, I don't want the I don't want the skill to be able to. I don't want my skill to be practical. Put it that way. It has to be fun. I'm I'm, I'm an inherently fun loving and impish person. I'm a pixie, so I don't want to. You know, I don't care about. I'm not going to choose the skill of like I want to save the world and like cure hunger. That's boring. 
what I no, and that's fine. I'm I'm fine with you not doing that. I'd prefer a selfish yeah. one. It's meant to reveal something about yep. yourself, but uh, it does come with the implications that that would come with. So often, if someone says, like, if it's a comedian and they say they'd like to be a really good singer, I like to ask them. How would you incorporate that into your life? Mm. Would it become part of your act? Would you become a professional singer instead of a comedian? So if you were, you had the capacity to fly, mm. you understand, would you keep it secret? Would it be a thing that you reveal publicly? Because you know if you reveal publicly as being the first person who can fly, mm. that comes with a myriad of other issues that arise with that. It's not just you being able to conveniently get from place yeah, to place. Okay. You're suddenly the man that can okay. fly. I try it out for three weeks. I get good at it. I yeah. have a, I have a lot of fun <laughs> at night you know, and I have a lot of fun hiding myself <laughs> But this is not a gift that I can withhold from humanity, Will. This is something that humanity deserves to behold. Uh, and uh, I will become the flying broadcaster. I'll record my podcasts from 20,000 feet. I'll be all, I mean, I will be... Imagine what it would do for uncomfortable conversations with Josh Sepps if all of the podcasts were recorded while I was gently bobbing somewhere around the Sydney Opera House. <laughs> <laughs> and people would take photos. I mean, no, that'd be great. That'd be a great thing to be famous for. So many, I mean, so much other, so many other stupid reasons why I can gain notoriety, like, you know, saying offensive words on your podcast. Let's do it. Let's do it the real way. I want to fly around Mount Everest. Yeah, there'd be a lot of attention on cancelling you, though, if you're the first guy who could fly. People would be going through your old yeah. tweets and old podcasts yeah, to right. find out exactly. about this guy yeah. who can suddenly they'd, fly. And they'd be picking out things any time that I'd ever said anything negative about aviation or about anyone else who could fly. They'd be, you know, He said something bad about birds once. Hypocrite. Guys, guys. I've got the unedited copy of uh, Willosophy before the beeps. Exactly. That's right. We can cancel flying guy. Exactly. It's very tall poppy syndrome. <laughs> you should have heard his rant about eagles. He hated them. Uh, yeah. uh, all right. Uh, final yeah. question. Uh, I have a time machine, much like the magic mm. wand. I don't. So please don't follow it up later. Yeah, but yeah. I have a round trip, yeah. and I think you get the idea yeah. of this. I don't need you to go back and kill baby Hitler yeah. unless that is the pressing thing that you, you specifically want mm. to do. This is your personal trip. Mm. Anywhere uh, in the past, anywhere in the future, anywhere in your own life, I don't mind, but it's a round trip in a time machine. What do you do with it? Here I actually would feel some uh, sense of duty and, and intellectual kind of obligation to figure out if we're going to get out of all this. And so I'd have to mm. say I'd go to about uh, maybe 2200, 2250. Uh, I just want to know... Because I think by then... If there's anything still there. Yeah, yeah exactly. If you're the only what's, person on Earth. What's there? Because we've only had, you know, we've had nukes for 75 or 85 years now, 1945, uh, um, 75 years, right? I reckon by the time you've had them for... And we've had the Industrial Revolution for a couple of hundred years. Yeah, you probably give the Industrial Revolution half a millennium and you give nukes about two or 300 years. So... Uh, 23, 22.50. Mate, this has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for Total doing pleasure. this. I really do appreciate it. People should listen to your excellent podcast. Uh, you know, I reckon some people who listen to this will feel uncomfortable good. about some of the topics that are raised, and I think that is a good thing. And uh, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to get to talk to you. Outstanding. Great to talk to you, as always, Will. Thanks, mate. 